All right, we are going to be in Luke chapter 4 this morning. We're going to start in verse 16. Uh, the title of the sermon is The Process of Knowing Jesus. Throughout Advent, we looked at the names of Jesus and we were really focused in on his character. So this morning, we're going to look at Jesus' message, and then once we get into the Sermon on the Mount, we'll also look at Jesus' message. Uh, please stand for the reading of God's Word. This is Luke chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath and the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is God's Word. Be seated. One of my favorite Christian sports figures is Eric Liddell. Eric Liddell is the person on which the movie Chariots of Fire was based. And so I've been reading about him and studying about him. And uh, his life was very fascinating. He had a, a pretty rapid rise to stardom in the running world. Uh, he, he began running uh, when he was in college, and he became famous for being fast. He was very fast, and he was a Scotchman, so they called him the Flying Scotchman. They, they called him out for two reasons. One, because he was fast. And two, because he had this very signature finish. At the end of every race, he would get near the finish line, and he would cock his head back, and he would close his eyes and open his mouth, and his arms would kind of flail, and it literally looked like he was like flying towards the finish line. It was very unorthodox. But as people watched him, and as he kind of rose to stardom, everybody became amazed by him. They thought he was awesome. They loved him. They're like, yes, the flying Scotchman, Right? If you were a, a Scotchman, you were excited because he represented you. If you were British, you were excited because he was going to represent you in the Olympics. Everybody loved him until the Olympics came around in 1924 in Paris. And then he found out that his heat was on Sunday, and he was a Christian, and he refused to run on the Sabbath. And it was interesting the different reactions from people. Some of them were like, yes, a Christian who won't run on the Sabbath. That's great. He wants to glorify God. And some were confused. They were like, 
This guy's been training his entire life to win the Olympics, and now he's not going to run? One day? One race? And then some were angry. The Scotchman that really wanted him to win the gold medal for their country was mad. And Britain was mad because uh, their medal, his medal would have counted in their medal count. So you have this, it's just sort of this fascinating picture play out as, as people got to know Eric Little better, as they understood him and his message better, you had these different reactions to him. Well, in this text this morning, we see the same thing happen to Jesus. Jesus comes on the scene. He's preaching. He's teaching. People are amazed by the way He speaks. They're amazed by His healing. And as they get to know Jesus, as they dig deeper into who He is and what He's actually saying, you find that the reactions vary. You find that there's this process to knowing Jesus and to knowing what He's about. They start out, they're amazed by Jesus, and then they're confused by Jesus, and then they're infuriated by Jesus, and they want to kill Him. It's pretty incredible, the process that they go through. And I think that we go through a process of knowing Jesus as well. You know, We just came off Advent. It's a time when we celebrate God Himself coming to earth to be a baby in Jesus. It's a big deal. It's a very special, sentimental time. And if you're a Christian, you have to take Jesus seriously. If Jesus really is God, like He says, then you can't just ignore Him. You have to take Him seriously. You have to pay attention to Him. But when you begin to take Him seriously, but when you begin to look at what He said, and what He did, and what He wants you to do, you move through these different reactions, don't you? At first you're amazed. And then you're like, how can I do this? This is really hard. And then you might even at times find yourself being infuriated by what Jesus asked you to do. There's a process to knowing Jesus. The good news is this, as we see in this text, for those people who are poor in spirit, the process of knowing Jesus leads to grace. If you're poor in spirit, the process to knowing Jesus always leads to grace. If you look at the text, Jesus comes to Nazareth on the Sabbath, Nazareth was his hometown. Um, and the synagogue was his home church. It's there on the Sabbath day, which was Saturday. That's the day that they went to church for worship. And they had a very set liturgy during that time, just how we have a very set liturgy. And it came to the point in the liturgy when there was supposed to be a reading from the prophets and then an interpretation. So Jesus comes. They, they pick him. He reads the text of Isaiah. And he gives his interpretation. Now, in his text, he takes a few verses from Isaiah and he brings them together. This great passage here about the Spirit of the Lord. Let's look here. Verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This passage is a bunch of passages from Isaiah. And what they do is they look forward to a great prophet coming to Israel. The prophet. The prophet anointed with God's Spirit. Set apart to bring good news. The word gospel is also a word for good news. Literally, this prophet came to bring the gospel to whom? To the poor. Now the poor here in this text is not just the financially poor. It's the spiritually poor. 
It's people who are needy. It's anybody who knows that they need God to come and deliver them and save them. It describes the poor here as those who are captive, those who are blind, those who are oppressed. To these people, this great prophet was going to come and he was going to set them free and he was going to allow them to see and he was going to release them and give them freedom. The language points back to the Exodus. In the, in, in the Old Testament, God describes the Exodus as a time when His people were enslaved to Egypt. And then God raises up His mighty hand and He delivers them out of their slavery in, from Egypt. And he delivers them into the Promised Land. Well then God, after He delivers them, He gives them a command to celebrate this delivery. And that command was to carry out the year of Jubilee. And right here in verse 19 where it says, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, that's a reference to the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee was supposed to take place every 50th year. For 49 years, Israel would go through their normal course of life. And during that time, people would become indebted. They would owe people. Uh, the land would become sold and it would switch uh, possession. You know, it was an agricultural uh, environment. So if I had a debt and I had to pay it, but I couldn't pay it, I might have to sell my land to somebody else. Okay. Also, people would become enslaved. They had a form of indentured servitude. It was different than our slavery. It was much better, much healthier. But it was a form of indentured servitude. So that would take place, those things would happen over 49 years, but on the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, all that stuff would change. Everything would be reset. All debts would be canceled. All slaves would be free. And all land would go back to its rightful owner. And it was a reminder of how God had delivered His people from the Exodus. So that's what these people were looking forward to. That's the gospel of grace that this prophet was going to bring. And then Jesus astounds them all by saying, today this prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm the prophet. I have come to bring this grace to you now. I have come to bring the year of Jubilee. I've come to cancel all debts. I've come to release the captives. I've come to bring spiritual sight. That was Jesus' mission. That was His message. And that was good news for the poor. All right. Now we know in the, Old, in the New Testament that that all applies to sin. Right? Sin enslaves us. Sin holds us captive. We're enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those are three things that war against Christians. And we know that Jesus came. He lived His life. He died His death. And He rose from the grave to save us from those things. So this is the Gospel of grace. This is grace. This is the message of grace. This is what Jesus came to preach. This is what He came to live out. And as we look through this text, we see three different reactions. We see people going through a process of knowing Jesus and understanding this. Look at the first reaction. The first reaction is that people are amazed by grace. Verse 22, And all spoke well of Him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. They're amazed. They hear this great message. Yes, the year of Jubilee is here. The captives are going to be freed. All debts are paid. We are going to be liberated. This is the time. And they're amazed at it. The Gospel is amazing. And that ought to be our initial reaction to the Gospel of grace. Right? Think about when you were converted. Think about the first time you heard about grace. Think about the first time you heard about forgiveness of sins. Think about the first time you heard about Jesus died on the cross for you. Did that amaze you? Did that captivate you? 
this semester, I got the opportunity to share the gospel with a young man who had never heard the gospel before. I'm going to change the name because I want to um, protect him. But I'm going to call I'm going to call this guy's name George. But I met George through a few different RUF things. And uh, George had a very interesting background. His mother was a Christian. His father was a Muslim. And he decided he was going to pick something that was kind of in the middle. He was going to try to kind of blend the two, Christianity and Islam, together. And as I talked to him, as I kind of got to know this, I said, George, you have a problem. He said, I do. And I said, yeah, you got a problem. problem is you have some very big questions you have to answer in your life. What is the meaning of life? How can I be saved? Who is God? What is my purpose? And Christianity and Islam have radically different answers to these questions. And what you've done is you've, formed, you've tried to bring them together and you've created your own religion called Georgism. And he kind of looked at me and was like, you can imagine somebody saying you created your own religion. He was a little bit taken aback. I was like, you have. You're trying to answer these questions with this own religion that you've created. How's that working for you? I want you to think about how you're going to answer these questions. So he went away. I set up a second meeting. We got back together. I said, George, how are you answering those questions? He said, it's kind of hard. I said, yeah, it is hard. It's hard. I said, this is what I want you to do. I, I gave him a book on worldviews. I said, this book compares Christianity to other worldviews. I want you to read it. I, said, I want to talk about it. But before you read it, I want to explain to you the central tenet of Christianity. I want to explain to you the gospel. So I explained the gospel to him. I explained some, some language similar to what we use here. right? And when I got done, George looked up at me and he said, is that really what Christians believe? I said, yeah, that's it. And his eyes got real big and he looked at me and he goes, that's amazing! And I said, you're right. It is amazing. It's incredible. And he goes, I think I find this more attractive than Islam. And I said, so do I! <laughs> and what we got down to was he really, the way he saw God was this. He saw God as having this cosmic balance. And he hoped that in the end, his good deeds would outweigh his bad deeds. But he knew that that would never happen, that his bad deeds would always outweigh his good deeds. And so he could never be sure if he would be saved, and he never had any security. What I explained to him was in Christianity, Jesus says all of Jesus' good deeds outweighed all of our bad deeds. And our bad deeds are even wiped away. And we get all of His perfect righteousness. He took all of our sin. And we're saved based on grace. And George thought that was amazing. Is that amazing to you? That ought to be our, that ought to be our reaction. But we know, as I said before, that we begin to dig into Christianity and we move. There's this process of knowing Jesus. We move from amazed by grace and then we might become confused by grace or even skeptical by grace. And you see that happens to the Jews here in the text. Look at verse 22 again. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? They're starting to think. They're like, oh, wait a second. He is, he's offering all this grace and he's saying that he's the anointed prophet from God? Isn't this Joseph's son? Who is he? And they're kind of confused. And then Jesus answers and He says, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Now I want to say this. If you're confused by grace, if you're confused by Jesus, 
Jesus is very, very gracious to those who are confused. He's very gracious to have, to people who have genuine questions, right? Mary, whenever the angel announced to Mary that Jesus was going to be born, that she was going to give birth to God, she was confused. And she said, how do I know this is going to be? And the angel gave her a sign. It was gracious. Doubting Thomas. When Thomas doubted the resurrection, he said, I won't believe until I touch your hands, until I see your wounds. Jesus was very gracious to him. He came to him, let him see his wounds, let him touch him. If, as you dig into Jesus, you are going to have questions. If those questions come from a sincere knowledge of wanting to know God, Jesus is very gracious with you. He gives you answers. But there's another deeper problem here. And, and the deeper problem with the Jews is they weren't just confused by grace, they were skeptical about Jesus' grace. They were skeptical, right? They know who Jesus was. They grew up with him, right? This was Nazareth. This was his hometown. They saw how he lived. They heard about all the miracles he did in Capernaum. They knew. They knew who he was. What were they doing? They were using their questions to try to stiff arm Jesus. They were using their questions to avoid grace. They were bringing up all these theological questions. They were doubting him. They're asking for more and more evidence to try to keep Jesus away. And I think sometimes we can do that with Jesus. We just begin to stir up question after question after question. We become skeptical about Jesus. And really, it's not because we want to know more. It's just because we don't want to have to deal with Jesus. We want to keep him away. And I think that's, that can be a big problem in our tradition and Reformed theology because we are very heady. We are very information-based. And so we want to, to figure out the number of angels that can dance on a pinhead. Okay? But it's very easy for us to be consumed with all those minute details in such a way as really just to avoid Jesus and avoid grace. And for skeptics, if you're here and you're a skeptic, or if you're kind of really borderline Christianity, creating all these questions can be a way to just avoid dealing with Jesus as well. I have a friend who's always kind of borderline about Jesus. He's always borderline about whether or not he wants to be a Christian. And he's always asking me questions. And the conversations always start out like this. He'll ask me a very sincere, good question about Jesus. And I'll begin to answer it. And I'll give him an answer. And that leads to another question, and another question, and another question. Pretty soon we're off some rabbit trail about how many dinosaurs there were whenever the flood happened. And I finally just get to the point where I go, look man, you have to deal with Jesus. You have to deal with the answers to these questions. I think your questions are just trying to avoid Jesus. Questions are good. It's good when they come in the right spirit. But we can't use our questions to avoid Jesus. If you have questions about grace, if you're confused, bring them to Jesus. Let Him answer those questions. But at some point, you have to believe and respond to the information that Jesus has given you. He has laid out. God has given you everything you need in His Word. He's given you everything you need by the Holy Spirit. He will answer your questions. Sincere, good questions. But you have to believe. And you can't use it just to stiff on Him and keep Him away. So in this process, the Jews go from being amazed by grace to being uh, confused by grace. And then Jesus does something amazing. He actually gives them more evidence. right? He, he looks in their heart and says, you want more evidence? I'm going to give you more evidence. And He actually gives them more evidence. And the evidence He gives them infuriates them. They move from being confused to being infuriated. 
If you look at verses 24 through 28, um, Jesus tells them about two people. He says, you want more evidence? Well, let me tell you about these two people. And he tells them about two people, the widow of Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian. Okay? The widow of Zarephath. This took place during the time of Elijah the prophet. It was, there was a famine over the whole land. Okay? Everybody was starving. Even Elijah the prophet. And God told Elijah, He said, I want you to go to the land of Sidon and there's going to be a widow there and she's going to make you food and you're going to eat and survive. So Elijah goes to the widow and when he finds the widow, she's actually picking up sticks because she's going to make her last meal. She's so poor, she literally thinks she's going to die. He says, I want you to make me bread. She says, I'm picking up sticks to make my last meal for my son and I. And he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to make me bread and then make bread for you and your son and you're going to have enough bread to last you until the famine's over. And she did it. She believed him. She responded in faith. And God did a miracle. He gave her enough food for Elijah and for her and for her son and they lived until the famine was over. So Jesus picks, I want you to know what he does, he picks an actually poor person and he shows how God gave grace to an actual poor person. The next person is Naaman the Syrian. Naaman was a general. He was a famous man. He got lots of honor. He was very wealthy. He was also a murderer. He was a bad dude. He also had leprosy. Naaman found out that the king of Israel, the God of Israel, was very powerful. And so he sent the king of Israel a message. He said, hey, take all this money. Have your God heal me. And the king of Israel is like, oh, Naaman wants me to heal him. I can't heal him. He's just trying to pick a fight with me. Well, Elisha the prophet overhears this going on, and Elisha says, hey, send Naaman to me and I'll heal him. And he says, okay. So he tells Naaman to come see Elisha. Naaman comes to see Elisha, and uh, Naaman says, will you heal me? And Elisha says, yes. Go dip in the Jordan River seven times. And Naaman's like, what? I want you to, you know, he wants him to cast some magical spell. Tell him to tell me to spin around on my head. He wants to do something amazing. And Elisha says, No, I want you to go dip in the Jordan River seven times. And Naaman actually goes away and doesn't do it. And then he goes to his, his servants, and his servants say, What are you doing? The guy's just telling you to be washed and be clean. Do it. So Naaman goes, he dips in the Jordan River seven times, and he's healed. So Jesus says, You want more evidence? Here's the evidence. These two people. An actual poor person is healed and a spiritually poor person is healed. Naaman was spiritually poor. And that infuriates them. They want to kill him. Why? There's three reasons why. The first one is this. Grace goes to the unexpected people. They were not expecting God to give grace to the Gentiles. But He did. Grace goes to unexpected people. Grace goes to unworthy people. These people did not deserve the grace that God gave them. They were sinners. The Jews are mad because who are they? They're the church people. They're in church. They're doing good works, right? They're, they have a good worship service that, that follows the proper synagogue order. But God gives grace to unworthy people. He gives grace to sinners. And the third reason they got angry was this. Grace demands a response. These people had the evidence. 
they, they had the prophets come say, hey, here's grace. Believe in it. Receive it. And they did. The Jews wanted grace based on their nationality. They just want to say, hey, I'm Jewish. I go to the synagogue. Give me grace. Grace demands a response. And it infuriated them. And they wanted to kill Jesus. And I will tell you, I think that if we really, when we begin to really understand Jesus, these things will infuriate us too. I think that if you've never been infuriated by Jesus, then you might not have really bumped into him. I would go so far as to say, have you ever, I would ask you, have you ever been infuriated by grace? Have you ever been infuriated by Jesus? Let's just take these one at a time. Grace goes to the wrong people. Have you ever been mad because somebody got converted that you didn't think should get converted? Have you ever been mad that, you know, grace converts Republicans and Democrats? Grace converts Sooners and Cowboys. Grace converts Blacks and Whites and Middle Easterners. Grace converts your neighbor that is rich and wealthy and beautiful. And grace converts your neighbor that is poor and broken and just a pain in the tail. Grace converts everybody. Has it ever made you mad? There are people that I want to receive grace and they don't. And it kind of makes me mad that they don't. It kind of makes me mad that they're not Christians. Grace goes to unworthy people. Grace goes to sinners. Has it ever made you mad that Jesus would forgive your spouse and you don't want to? Children, has it ever made you mad that grace would forgive your parents that you don't want to? Has it ever made you mad that Jesus would forgive your roommate that you don't want to? That auto that properly will probably, if you're running into Jesus, you're going to bump into that. That grace is going to call you to forgive somebody that you don't want to forgive. Grace demands a response. I'm going to talk to uh, covenant children here for a second. If you've been baptized, you're a covenant child. You were in the covenant. Jesus loves you. This you know. Grace is offered to you, but you have to respond to it. You have to believe in faith. Grace demands a response. Some of us are struggling with sin. We're struggling with habitual sins like pornography, greed, materialism. Okay? Jesus offers you grace for those things, but you have to respond. You have to get an accountability partner. You have to get software. You have to stop spending money on clothes that you don't need. Grace is offered to you, but it demands a response. And that is a little bit infuriating. And I think it's biblical that if we bump into Jesus, we're going to be a little bit uh, rubbed. We're going to be a little bit infuriated. Isaiah 55 says that God's ways are not our ways. God's ways are not our ways. And what we tend to think of when we think of that is God's providence. I didn't get the house that I wanted. God's ways are not our ways. He's just going to give me a better house. But that's not actually the context of that passage. The context of that passage is forgiveness and the free, the free offer of the gospel to sinners. That passage, Isaiah 55 says, come to me all you who are weary and burdened. Come, come drink, come eat, and I'll forgive you. It's the free offer of the gospel. And that is totally different than us. We would not offer the free offer of the gospel if we were God. We wouldn't do it. We wouldn't give people grace. The gospel of grace is backwards to us. It's like going down a ladder. You guys ever realize how backwards it is to go down a ladder? Okay, let me demonstrate, right? I, I, I realized this as I was taking down my Christmas lights the other day. 
But, so, you've got a ladder. You're supposed to go down the ladder like this. You're supposed to face the ladder and walk down the ladder backwards. Right? But you don't want to do that because you're not looking where you're going. How do you want to walk down the ladder? You want to turn around and you want to face the ground where you're going to walk and you want to walk down the ladder this way. Well, what's the problem with that? You get top heavy and the ladder flips over. The right way to walk down the ladder is actually backwards. To turn like this. That's the way grace is for us. It's like walking down the ladder the right way. It's backwards. It's not what we naturally do. The default mode of our hearts every day when we wake up in the morning is not grace. It's not forgiveness. It's not the gospel. The good thing is, where grace infuriates us, it also liberates us. So the amazing thing about this passage is, the Jews were angry because of grace. But it's the very grace of Jesus that infuriated them, that also liberated them. Okay? They were supposed to take the gospel out to the poor. They were supposed to take the gospel out to the nation. They were supposed to love the broken and the poor, and they didn't do it. But you know what Jesus did? He was the true and greater Israel. He, the rest of the book of Luke, is all about Jesus going out healing lost and broken people, especially Gentiles. And then Jesus goes to the cross, and He dies on the cross, and who kills Him? The Jews. And He rises from the dead, and He pays for their sins. He fulfilled what they were supposed to do. He fulfilled. They were supposed to go out and love the nations and take the gospel of grace to the nations. They didn't do it, but He did. The very place where Jesus infuriated them was the place where He offered them grace. And it's the same thing for us. The very place where Jesus infuriates us is where He offers His grace. It's where He liberates us. Think about it this way. My wife challenged me to this. She always makes me illustrate things. Your, your spouse sins against you. You don't want to forgive them. Your natural inclination is not to forgive them. It is to hold it against them. It is to punish them. It is to be passive-aggressive and ignore them. Okay? Jesus says to forgive as you've been forgiven. At that point, when you refuse to give your spouse, you are sinning. But Jesus offers you grace. He forgives you in that very moment. He forgives you. He offers it to you. Children, you don't want to obey your parents? Jesus obeyed His Father all the way to the grave. And when you don't want to obey your parents, He offers you grace. He paid for that sin. The very place where He infuriates you is where He offers you grace. But you've got to be poor. You've got to be willing to come to Him in that moment of infuriation and say, okay, I get it. I'm poor. I'm a sinner. I'm broken. I need grace. The process of knowing Jesus is a process that leads to grace. We go from being amazed to skeptical to infuriated. And if we get too infuriated and we're willing to admit that we're poor and broken, then guess what? The Gospel becomes good news again. And we're amazed. And we dig into the Word. And we try to live it out. And then we become infuriated again. And then we go, okay, Jesus, I need you. And it becomes good news. And then you go through the cycle again. And there's this, this cycle in the Christian life of realizing that you're poor and you're broken and receiving grace. Of realizing that you're poor and broken and receiving grace. It's always good news. And Jesus always offers it to you. But you've got to be poor enough to receive it. So as we head into the new year, I want to encourage you 
Start your, start your, dig into the Word of God. Read the Bible. Pray. Come to worship. Engage in worship. Walk through these steps. You're going to be amazed by grace. You're going to be confused by it. You're going to be infuriated by it. And as you walk through these steps, receive the grace that Jesus Christ offers you.